Glad that you are in service with us in Sunday school here today. And uh, let me see here. I got a bunch of stuff up here. I got to figure out what's happening. And I also got my confirmation for my appointment at the hair business as I do every Sunday for Linda. Still have not figured that out. And I also get a survey every week about how my hair appointment was. Just need to take the time to fill it all out. So if you need me at 9 tomorrow, I'll be at the hair business under the name Linda. So anyway. <laughs> I figured, you know, it'd be a joke for a little bit, but it's been months. And here's the other thing. Why does Linda need an appointment every Monday at 9? I mean, every Monday. I don't know. I need to go there and meet Linda. That's what I need to do. Anyway, I'm excited about what God is doing. Amen. I'm looking forward to what God is, is doing, uh, going to do and what he's doing right now. Amen. I don't ever want to lose sight just looking ahead and miss what God is doing right now because God is doing great things right now. Amen. So we are going to uh, get into our Sunday school lesson today and uh, we're finishing up. Uh, talking about uh, heaven. We're finishing talking about hope for the last days. And uh, this week we're going to talk about the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Turn to your neighbor and tell them the best is yet to come. Mm, doesn't that sound great? The best is yet to come. Amen. We're going to pray that the Lord would have his way today in each of our classes, that he would lead us and guide us today. Why don't you join with me in prayer this morning? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for today. I thank you for this opportunity and privilege we have to be in your presence, Lord, to be in your house, gathered together with one another. And Lord, I pray that you would have your way in every class today. Lord, that every teacher would speak your word with a clarity and a boldness. And Lord, I believe that you will move in touch. I pray that you would anoint our ears to hear your voice today, God, what you want to say to us, that you would challenge us, encourage us, lift us up today, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our scripture focus today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to be reading verses 50 through 55, and these may be verses that you've heard before, but it reads this way, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Those are hopeful words for you and I. Amen. Those are not the exact words that Paul says, but in Thessalonians, Paul tells us that we are to comfort one another with these words after he spoke about heaven. And as I read those verses, I know there's a lot of corruptible and incorruptible and mortal and immortal. I know there's a lot of those things gets maybe gets you a little messed up there, but what it means is one day the Lord's returning, and in a moment we will be caught up with Him, and in that moment, victory will be complete. I'm glad that I can be a part of that, aren't you? Death is something that 
uh, encounters us every so often, whether it's in thought or whether something happens uh, as we begin to think about things. It's been something that has, if you could say, intrigued, frightened, and challenged man since the fall of man, since that moment. Every civilization, it's, every civilization has come up with their own rituals and different things involving burial and death and somehow attempting to preserve or prepare mankind for what comes next. I don't know if you saw uh, here just in the last week or so, uh, they had, I don't, I don't know that when it was excavated, but it was a, an Egyptian priest that they had excavated that was mummified. They've had it for a while, but somehow by studying it and looking at how, I don't know what all was there. It wasn't vocal cords, but just how the structure, the skeleton that remained, uh, they were able, they say, to give it a voice. Now, I thought that's, I thought, man, that's kind of creepy. So I was like, I'm going to listen to that, and it's going to be this, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was highly disappointing, first of all, let me tell you that. Highly disappointing, because when they said they gave it a voice, it's one noise. I clicked on it, it's like, ah, ah. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> That's someone's tax, tax dollars at work right there. Ah. <laughs> That's, what, That's the noise you make when you see how much taxes were taken out of your check. Ah. <laughs> so it was a little disappointing. Uh, but even Egyptian culture, different cultures, you begin to look at, at what they did. It, it, they, they would look how to preserve and prepare mankind for whatever they believed came next. They would, there's all kinds of strange rituals. Um, 1964, though, a book entitled The Prospect of Immortality was published by a physics teacher who was also an amateur part-time science fiction author. So you know that's going to be good. His name was Robert Edinger. And in this book, he brought about the idea that you've probably heard about now, but the idea that the body upon death could be frozen and then reanimated at some point in time. We know it now, it's given a scientific term as cryogenics. The idea that when a person dies, their body is frozen at an extremely cold temperature, it's suspended, and then at some later date, hopefully, a cure for whatever killed them, or even a cure for the aging process, which some scientists say is a sickness, that they can cure aging, which I, I don't know. I, I won't talk about that. Uh. But they hope that the aging process, something is discovered that, that they can be uh, thawed out. <laughs> That's kind of a strange thing to think about. They'll be thawed out and revived and cured. Now, there's all different ways that people do this now, whether it's their entire body, and there's also ways now where it's just the brain that they freeze. And uh, that just reminded me of, obviously, when you think of a brain being frozen, your mind automatically goes to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Krang. Anyone remember that? You know, the little face thing, and he had a whole body? need to look that up too. Look up the priest, look up Krang, take notes on these things. These are important things for this week. But uh, whether they create AI bodies and they put a, a brain in there that's been frozen, whatever, but there's all kinds of things looking at it. And the first person to be cryogenically frozen was a psychologist, Dr. James Bedford in 1967. I think I would have waited more than four years before I tried it out. But 
There's only a few companies that operate uh, in, in this arena, uh, but there are roughly today in the U.S. about 300 people who have been frozen and are waiting. One of the things that inhibits it is the cost ranges anywhere from eighty to $200,000 for this process, so this limits who can do it. But the most famous personality that is frozen right now is probably Ted Williams, the baseball player. I mean, you've heard of Ted Williams before. He holds the record for the most consecutive games having... No, is that No, the highest... Uh, he holds the record for something. I can't remember now. Something important, real important. But he's frozen right now, waiting to someday come back, and I don't know if he, I don't know if he plans to play again, uh, but he is waiting to be reanimated. But despite all the study and research and belief in this process... No one has been successfully reanimated yet. Like the people that have been frozen, I'm sure there are many people who would pass on death if they could. We've been told that death is our enemy, and the Bible does say that the last enemy shall, that shall be destroyed is death. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But death is an enemy that has been swallowed up in victory because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and because of the promised resurrection of you and I on that great day, because we are in Christ, there is no longer any sting in death or victory in the grave. Now, we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if there was a chapter in Scripture that, that uh, uh, goes into great detail about the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection, about you and I being resurrected on one day, then it is 1 Corinthians 15 contained in there. That's all that Paul talks about. And so we're going to look through some of the passages in 1 Corinthians because it is concerned with the resurrection of the dead. And when we're talking about a hope for tomorrow, it's important for us to talk about you and I being resurrected. And it begins this chapter by pointing out that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an important, in fact, it's an integral part of the gospel. Yes, the cross is central to the gospel, but we, without a resurrection... The cross doesn't have the same effect in our lives. And in, in, in the, the city of Corinth, there were people who were denying the resurrection of the dead. They were in church. They uh, believed in the Holy Ghost. They believed in all these things. But they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, verse 13 tells us. If this was the case, if there was no resurrection of the dead, then the gospel is stripped of its core, that our faith is pointless. And those who testified, Paul says, there was all these people who saw Jesus after he had been resurrected, and he includes himself in that number. He says, if you say there's no resurrection, then all of these people, Peter, John, James, myself included, were just a bunch of liars then, because we saw him. To deny the resurrection of Christ, Paul says in verse 17, is to deny his redemptive work. To, to deny redemption in our life. This would mean that those who died with their faith in Christ have perished. That's it. Hope for the future, what we're talking about today, is based on the resurrection. That our hope is founded in the resurrection. And a denial of the resurrection, it leaves you and I hopeless and to be pitied. In verse 19, it says, a verse that I'm sure you've heard before, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. <laughs> well, let's think about that later. 
despite the claims of some of the people in Corinth and despite the claims of people during that time, we need to satisfy in our own mind and settle in our own mind that there is a resurrection. And the reason that we believe in a resurrection and the proof for this is in the resurrection of Christ. That if Christ was raised from the dead, then I can have... Christ. And so since death... Adam and Eve lived in the garden before the fall of man. We don't know how old they were. We don't know any of that. But it was this intervention, it was, it was because of sin that, and this human intervention that sin entered the world by one man, Scripture tells us, but also because of one man, resurrection entered the world. Adam entered the world and there was sin because of what he did, but because Jesus entered the world and because of what he did, there is also because of his life and who he was and how he lived it, of course we know, then his death and his burial and his resurrection, that that has now entered into the realm of humanity. That we identify with Adam in death, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We identify with Adam in death, but in Jesus Christ, we identify with life. Never mistake that living for God is about life. Now, I understand there's verses that talk about we are crucified with Christ, that we must die, and that is true, but the reason that we die is we die to ourselves so that we can live fully in Him and through Him. So never forget that in your walk with God that it is about life. It is about having life, and Jesus says, life and life more abundantly. That's what this is about. And it's so easy for us to, while, while it is important, we have to crucify our flesh, we have to crucify desires, but our life is not one that is just about beating ourselves up all the time. It's not one about where, th this is how people end up physically uh, uh, engaging in things that, that, that is not biblical. You look at uh, different beliefs in the, in the broad spectrum of Christian belief and and how they have uh, uh, decided to crucify their flesh in even physical ways of beating themselves, of flogging themselves, of denying themselves, of, of sometimes even human necessities. God has called us to a life of sacrifice. God has called us to crucify things, but He came to give us life and life more abundantly. So what this tells me is that, yes, I know it's not going to be a bed of roses in my life. Yes, I know it's not all going to go my way. But if I don't feel like I'm doing something positive, like I'm living and having life more abundant, I might need to check my Christianity and how I'm serving God. And a lot of times when I find myself living that way, I find the problem is usually in me and that I'm not following or accepting or believing something Christ has promised in my life. So Christ's coming is the point in time at which the resurrection of those who are in Christ will occur. The final enemy that will be destroyed by Christ is death. The final enemy that will be completely destroyed by Christ is death. It is the resurrection 
that indicates the destruction of this enemy. Now, obviously, Christ went. We know he holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave. However, that final victory has not been accomplished yet because we all go the way of the grave. We know that death is still a reality right now. We're going to look at what this means for you and I right now. It doesn't mean that, but, but there will be a day when death will be completely destroyed. And it is because of Jesus' resurrection and because of what he has already done that we understand and believe and we have hope in this. We read, in fact, it was in the verses that we read in verse 55, it says, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? We understand now that when we die in Christ, yes, there is death and that has not been accomplished, but we understand that the sting of death has been taken away. I don't know if you've ever been to uh, uh, the home going of a believer, but sometimes, well, sometimes, every time, that should be a joyous occasion because we understand the sting of death. Even though death is still present with us, the sting of death has been removed. That it is not, yes, there is sorrow, yes, there is mourning, but we understand that there is something more, there is something greater, that there is a resurrection, that there is something that happens to us after this because of the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if he didn't rise from the dead, you should be really upset because that's it. If there is no resurrection from the dead, in fact, Paul says in verse 29, if there's no resurrection from the dead, it's even pointless to be baptized. Pointless to be baptized. <laughs> There's no point in putting oneself in jeopardy for the sake of being identified with Christ, is what Paul says in verse 30. I shouldn't have to be baptized. Why do I need buried? <laughs> I'm baptized with the hope of a new life. I'm baptized in the hope that I will be spiritually resurrected through the power of the Holy Ghost. But if there is no resurrection, naturally, that's not going to happen to me spiritually either. So to be baptized is pointless, Paul says in verse 29. Neither is there any point in putting myself in jeopardy for the sake of being identified with Christ if there's no resurrection. In verse 30, he says, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why do we do what we do if there is no resurrection? Just think about, just think about if there is no hope after this life. If we as believers believe, because that's what believers do, they believe. If there is no resurrection, if there is no heaven, think about how you're living your life right now. Think about the things that really are pointless if it all ends. Think about those things that really you wonder, why am I even doing this? If there's no resurrection, in fact, in verse 32, Paul says this, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, what advantage is that to me? I've fought for the gospel, I've given myself, I've done everything. In fact, he says then in verse 32, If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You see, if there is no resurrection, why am I denying myself? Why do I wake up every day, as Paul says, die daily and crucify my flesh, if there is nothing after this? Why would I do that? <laughs> why would I... Some mornings, yes, or some, whenever you do it, why would some, some days I get up and say, you know what, I really don't feel like it, but I'm going to pray. Why? Yeah, you know what, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to read the Bible today. Why? Why do I do those things if there is no resurrection? In fact, what Paul says, the logical response to the denial of the resurrection is self-indulgence. 
Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What's the point? Just go out and do whatever you want. The denial of the resurrection leads us to this. In fact, it encourages sinful behavior. Now, Paul says it this way. Let, let, let's flip it back around. If I don't believe in the resurrection, why should I do all these things? And my, the fruit of my life will be self-indulgent because there is no tomorrow. There is nothing to live for. There is nothing greater. There is nothing better than this life. So I might as well have... Oh, that reminds me of another story. I was in, uh, I was in uh, California, and uh, we just happened to be in this town. It was a little uh, beach town, and we just happened to be there. Uh, and, and that day was their annual big festival thing. Their annual little Egypt parade. No. <laughs> Just California style. So that meant bunches of weirdos. So what you do is you go to the little restaurant right on the street and you sit and watch out the window all the people. <laughs> and there was, there, there was some strange smells. <laughs> there was some strange buzzes. There was also some strange people. But I remember these two people, they, they greeted each other. It was these group of people that hadn't seen each other for a while. Who knows, maybe they were high and just met the day before, I don't know. But they, were, they met right in front of us, and you know, they're dressed like, the one lady had these, the, I don't know what they're called, but they're like those massive uh, balls on, on a string, and you twirl them and do all that kind of stuff. I should have brought them with me so I could have shown you how good I can do it. She had those, and so you know, man, this is going to be, this is going to be, but she greeted the people, and, and instead of saying hi or anything, she said instead of, her greeting was, are you living your best life? I was like, hmm. That's a little weird. I mean, are you living your best life? That's kind of good. But also, if this is all there is, you need to get the best out of right now. That's what you should do. That's how people live their life. If there is no resurrection, if there is no eternity, if there's nothing after, I need to do everything I can to get everything I can and do everything I can right now. Get it all right now. That is the fruit of not believing in an afterlife. Now let's flip it. Let's flip that. Because sometimes I'm living my life that way. I'm not really intending to do it, but unintentionally, I start living my life for only right now. So when I look at someone's life who's living their life that way, the fruit of that is it shows me their belief about the resurrection. You see, because there's, we've all had moments in our life when we have to pull ourselves back in and say, you know what? I kind of am living for this world right now. I've got caught up. Jesus says the cares of life will catch you up. And we've all been there where the cares of life just begin to overrun us. They just begin to, you know, we're running here, we're doing this, we're doing that. We've got a list a mile long and we're trying to get through it and we're trying to, well, I've got to go to church today, so let's get this done before. We, and, and before long we realize that things begin to slip. You know what the antidote to that is, to the cares of life? Heaven. Because it pulls my mind out of the here and now, and it reminds me that I'm not just trying to live my best life here, that it's not all about here, but I am living my life for something greater. And so it pulls my mind out of the everyday, mundane, getting stuck in these things, the cares of the life, and it puts my attention back where it needs to be. That yes, there is a resurrection, yes, I will participate in that resurrection someday, and I want to do everything I can to make sure I'm part of that resurrection someday. Those who denied the resurrection thought, this is a great word in the notes. I should use this word more often. Stymie. Stymie. Wasn't he one of the little rascals? No, I'm kidding. 
Those who denied the resurrection thought they could stymie the teaching with questions about the nature of the resurrected body. They thought, you know what? I can't, I will just confuse the whole issue. You know, you start talking about heaven and uh, uh, Jesus dealt with it. You know, this lady's had five husbands. She gets to heaven. They're all saved. And I'm not sure how that works out yet, but I guess they all died one after another. So if you meet that lady, don't marry her. We know what your end is. <laughs> now, they, they, do all that, we, they do all that, and then, like, who's going to be your husband? Who's going to be your husband in heaven? And we start getting caught up in all these things. And in fact, in, in, in Corinth, they were, they were trying to muddy the issue by saying, uh, well, when we get to heaven, what kind of body are we going to have? Are we going to recognize each other? Those questions, man, you can get some freaky questions in. Have you ever thought about this? Scripture says we'll, we'll be known and we'll know each other. So we're going to know one another somehow. But when I think about, like, my grandpa, I believe he's going to be in heaven. But my grandpa, I'm sure yours was too, he was always old to me. He always had wrinkles. I don't know my grandpa without wrinkles. But there's other people who knew my grandpa before he had wrinkles. So is he going to have wrinkles or not? Because when we get there, we're going to know him. Which version is it going to be, the 30-year-old or the 80-year-old? That's, man deep thoughts deep thoughts will we have wrinkles in heaven have you ever thought how are you going to recognize them because there's people that you know as they age you start to not recognize them that's everyone else it's never you right you look the same but they're starting to say, you know, well, I don't know what kind of body you're going to have in this. And they're trying to, and Paul says this, he says in verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up and what will the body do? And with what body do they come? With what body do they come? Which body are you going to show up to heaven with? Like you get a choice. He says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. So first of all, life comes through death. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another fish, and another of birds. What he says is that when, just like he's saying, he, he, he equates this to, to planting something. When you go, if you want an apple tree to grow, you don't plant the apple, you plant the seed. And the seed is not what you want to pick off that tree. Ooh, man, we got some good seeds on that tree. No, you don't want a little apple seed growing. You want an apple. And in the same way, what you want, at the it's two different things, even though it's the same thing. And he says, you know what? Our body is like a seed, that when we die, that seed is gone in the ground, but we will be made alive, and we will be something completely different, even though we're the same. Think about that one for a while. Maybe we could ask the mummy. What do you think about heaven? Uh, very good, very good. You guys are picking up on it. <laughs> Although the resurrection has been a mystery, Paul also says he provides a revelation for us. All will be changed. Even those who do not experience death before Christ's coming will be changed. The change will occur quickly in the twinkling of an eye. It will involve transformation from a corruptible body, from a mortal body to an incorruptible, immortal body. And at this point, death, the final enemy, will be conquered by Jesus Christ. In God's plan of redemption, he has determined that the Messiah will accomplish the subduing of all the enemies. 
In other words, all of God's enemies will be conquered by means of the incarnation. This is why it's so important because we understand that death came into the world through a man and so life has to come into the world through a man. And so the incarnation is so vital and so important for God. Uh, for, for Jesus had to conquer all of sin's consequences. He had to conquer, live a sinless life, but we understand that he had to also conquer death and the grave, which we know that he did. To say that Christ must reign till he has subdued all enemies does not mean that he will no longer reign after a certain point, but John indicates that Christ's reign will extend throughout all of eternity. We read in Revelation where it says that heaven needs no need of a light, but Jesus is the light, that Christ's reign will extend throughout eternity. And through that, we understand that you and I will reign with him also. The discussion in chapter 15 is the resurrection from the dead, and we find all these different things. And, and, but Paul saw the subjection of all things to Christ as the fulfillment of Psalms chapter 8 and verse 6, which reads, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. And so we believe because of the work of Christ, we believe because of what we read of his life, that death will also fall under his feet, and that that will one day be removed. But the relevance of 1 Corinthians 15 is much the same for the church today as it was for that first century church there in Corinth. Just as there were those who denied the resurrection amongst the Corinthians, there are those today, even those professing Christianity, who struggle with this. <laughs> who struggle with this. Struggle with the resurrection. Because here, here's, here's a, tr a trend maybe, or maybe I don't think it's a trend. It's not a trend because I just said it wasn't a trend because it was happening in 1 Corinthians. So this is a 2,000-year-old trend that's been taking place. But you see, what happens is we begin to, as we read Scripture and as we hear things, we begin to, sometimes we can begin to think almost as people in Scripture did, that this is really a good ethical religion. And we begin to think of it as an ethical religion. That just means, you know what, this is a, this is a good path for me. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And, and Brother Gene's preached about it plenty here recently. What you view about Jesus matters. It matters. Is he a good teacher? Absolutely. He's got great stuff to say. He's got stuff there. You take the Sermon on the Mount. You could go to any place here and, and pull stuff out and say, you know what? Is this something good to do? Should you treat the poor good? Yes. Okay. Well, you're a Christian then. <laughs> well, just because you believe pieces of the Bible doesn't... Well, anyway, we'll leave that one alone a little bit. But people begin to think of it as an ethical religion, and this is a good way to live my life. Um, this happens a lot of times when people have kids, and they say, I want my kid to go to Sunday school. 
Where have you been the last 10 years? <laughs> Sorry. Back, what's, what's it say? Oh, stymie. We're on stymie. Okay. Ah. If it's, and, and they just see it as a path for their kids. That This is a good foundation because, you know, when they get a job, these are good things to have. And when they treat other people, these are good things to have. And we can be in danger of Christianity just becomes something that inspires us to be a better person. And really, unbeknownst to ourselves, we get on that same thing as, am I living my best life now? Which I believe we should do in our best, but there is more to it than that. The reason I would live my best life now is not just for now, but for a future day and a resurrection. It's important for me to realize that this is not just a good set of teachings, and it is. That this is not just a good way to live your life, and other people will, will, they may like you because you treat them well, and you feed the poor, and you do all these things because it's in there, and you treat the widows and orphans well. And I'm not saying any of those things are unimportant because they're in the book, but if that's all you view it as, and there's no resurrection, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. There is something greater. There is something better that I am not just living my life for now. I am living it for some future moment when I will be caught up with him in the resurrection. If I strip Christianity of it, how is it any different than any other way? We suddenly, in our lives, we begin to strip the significance to that doctrine of the resurrection. In fact, I wonder, there's any number of things that it could be. But when Jesus says that they deny the power thereof, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. We know the ultimate power is the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. That translates into our life right now as the ultimate power is the Holy Ghost resurrecting us spiritually in our life. But it also plays out to that day that one day the dead in Christ will be caught up and those that are alive and remain will be caught up as well, that I can begin to deny that power. And you know what I've done? I now have a powerless path that I'm following. I've denied it of the ultimate power. It's important for us to make sure that we can't be ashamed of talking about eternity. We can't be ashamed about talking about a resurrection. Is it something that is hard to believe almost? Yes, it is. But that doesn't mean that we can strip it from what we believe and remove it from our doctrine, remove it from our religion, remove it from how it affects us every single day. Because that is the core of what we believe. In fact, the doctrine of the resurrection is central to the Christian faith. It's central. Without the resurrection of Christ, Christianity is just a hollow religion. (laughs) Paul says, I would be of all men most miserable without it. Without the promise of the resurrection uh, of all believers, Christianity really offers no hope. It offers no hope. And it is because of the resurrection that the Christian faith stands forth in distinction from every other religion. Oh, there's all different kinds of things, and and you can come back in all sorts of forms and, and ways, and depending on how good you are. But the gospel declares that Jesus did, he rose from the dead. He, that was validating his claim to be the Messiah and proving him to be the Son of God. And his resurrection means what we're getting back to is that there is hope. After all, that there is something greater after all. The enemy that has seemed so final, death itself has been conquered through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that, I can have hope right now. This life is not all there is. Every grave's going to open one day and there's going to be a joyous eternity to those who are in Christ. Two other things the doctrine of the resurrection also does. It's central to the Christian faith, but 
the doctrine of the resurrection, it helps us because it puts suffering in perspective. You see, we really have an issue with time because we're bound by it. Now, my youngest son is not bound by time because he has no concept of time. Told you many stories before. That's why when you say to him, you need to pick up those two things and take them to your room. It's, that's it. It's lost. It's over. Ah! It's going to take like 10 billion years. Well, how do you argue with something that'll take two minutes and 10 billion years? Like that's the bargaining point. Five million years? I mean, wh- where do you go? There's no place to go. No concept of time. And so there's no perspective. So what happens is because he has, doesn't have that concept of time, picking up two things can seem like a massive deal. You who have a concept of time and who have for seven years so far cleaned up his messes know that it's really not that big of a mess and it's not going to take that long. Okay? In fact, that's when you just pick it up and throw it in his room. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Did I say him or the stuff? No. <laughs> but just think about that. <laughs> We're the exact reverse of that. We have a concept of time. Just think about things that happen in our life. If if there is no time, then what is that two minutes right now? It's nothing. In fact, we we look, Paul says our life is but a vapor. It's but a vapor. Gone. That's what our life looks like. Now, I want you to put your situations and circumstances, I'm not saying it's not valid that they are very real and present to you right now, but put put them in the context of a vapor. If your entire life is just a vapor, sometimes, sometimes we're just like Cooper. Things happen in our life we're like, oh, oh, why do I have to do this right now? You know, <laughs> we need to get an understanding of the concept of time. That this is not all there is. This is not it. And when I begin to see that, yes, this, I'm not trying to negate bad things that happen to us in this life. I'm not trying to say, well, you know what, just shut up and get on with it. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes when we lose the view of heaven, it changes our perspective. And if I could gain a view of heaven, it puts my current suffering in perspective. Puts it in perspective. In fact, 1 Corinthians Chapter 15 and verse 48 says, As was the man of dust, so also those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also those who are of the heavenly. And as we've been born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We read these earlier. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. We start to read these verses about the corruptible. We start to read these things. And we, but all of a sudden we start to understand that there's a promise of a better state of being. It means that in the final analysis, if we take the long view, sin's most frightening consequences, the most frightening of all is death. That was the ultimate frightening consequence. We find that the most frightening consequence, when we take a long view, I know right now there's, there's pain and suffering. I know that right now there is death, but it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 that there is a day when death will be swallowed up in victory. 
That those things which are so present in my mind right now, that there is coming a day when those will be swallowed up from us. What a day that's going to be when all of a sudden I realize that what I thought was an eternity and the situation I was in took so long. All of a sudden when I see it in light of what is playing out in front of me, which is heaven forevermore, all of a sudden I realize that all of it was swallowed up in victory. I believe that that day when we walk through the gates, all of a sudden we'll understand time better. That those things that we thought were so important, those things that we thought were going to drown us and and take us under, were really just part of the vapor. They were something small and we realize that it was swallowed up in victory. You see, the doctrine of the resurrection, it provides a motivation for believers to do this. This is the last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, therefore, he's talked for 57 verses about heaven and how it's central, the resurrection, and there's coming a day when all the sorrow and all the pain and there's going to be a day of victory. He talks about all that and he says this, therefore, because you know all of this stuff, my beloved brethren, he says right now, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. See, that's my hope, is that yes, there may be struggle now, yes, there may be turmoil and pain, but if I can stay steadfast, if I can stay immovable, then death will be swallowed up one, one day, that I will see everything that Jesus Christ has promised. You see, we understand that Jesus is not just a historical figure, but He will continue to exist throughout all of eternity. And that means that all human beings will continue to exist. With, for Christ's essential humanness is no different than ours. He was fully man and fully God. And if He can now dwell for eternity, then you and I can dwell for eternity. And the last thing we look at, the doctrine of the resurrection and what it does, is it brings hope. It brings hope. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write. Why? For these words are true and faithful. These words. I want you to understand as well. This is something that we can't fully comprehend my hope can put myself there but I can't fully comprehend because when I read verse 4 that one that's so familiar that we read and we should read and we should comfort one another he shall wipe away all tears from their eyes there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying neither shall there be any more pain we put ourselves in that place we try to imagine what's it like with no more tears what's it like with no more death no more sorrow no more crying no more pain And all our minds have to grasp is those moments when we didn't have pain and we try to equate it. Or those moments before death entered our life and the sorrows entered our life and before those moments that brought tears entered our life. That's the comparison we have. But understand that heaven is not just about removing those things from our life. Because he says, 
For the former things are passed away. And then he that sat upon the throne said, I'm not taking you back to just zero. Here's tears and sorrow and pain, and I'm going to get you back to a place where there's no more tears, sorrow, and pain. He says, Behold, I make all things new. You see, because my view of heaven is like, man, won't that be a great place and people don't get sick anymore and people don't die? And yes, that is true. But see, I can't even fully grasp what it's going to be like because my human mind can catch some glimpse of that. But Jesus said, I'm going to make all things, not just to where they once were, but I'm going to make all things new. That there's something even greater about heaven that my mind can't fully comprehend, that my mind can't fully understand, yet my hope rests in that. That not just that he's going to take stuff away, but he's going to add stuff to me that I didn't even realize. In fact, I'm going to be a new creature. You see, because we say that in baptism, right? The burial, when you come up out of that water... Scripture says you're going to be a new creature in Christ. And we tell people, man, you're going to be someone different, and you're going to be a brand new person, you're going to have the same name, but you're going to be someone different. The same thing happens in heaven, is that yes, we will be the same person, but you can't even begin to describe how your life is going to change. You can't even describe the differences that will take place, that God is not just doing something that I can believe and imagine right now, but He's going to do something new in my life. And He said, write those down, for these words are true and faithful. Not just a removal of those current sorrows, but a new work is done. Resurrection brings hope. You see, it's these kind of things that enable me to be pulled out of my situation and the despair and sorrow that grab a hold of me. In fact, I heard it this week. It was a powerful statement that someone said that hopelessness is the point when I'm closest to the enemy. Because Satan is the only thing that has no hope. So the enemy wants to get you to a point of hopelessness. That's where he wants to get you. And you know what? There's situations that are horrible. There's situations I look at people's life and I say, how in the world can they have hope? Paul tells us how in 1 Corinthians and throughout his other writings. You know what? This is not all there is. If this is all there was, I'd be of all men most miserable because I got this happening and this happening. I can't fix this and I can't work this out. But he said, you know what? This is just temporary. And I know we've got to live it right now, but there is something more. There is something greater. And I'm looking forward to that day. I finished with this story. Chrysostom. Aren't you glad that's not your name? He was an early church father and an orator. And he, he deplored the ostentatious public lamentations that were made at Christian funerals in his day. When I behold the wailings in public places, the groanings over those who have departed this life, he said, the howlings and the other unseemly behavior, I am ashamed before the heathen and the Jews and the heretics who see it. And indeed before all who for this reason laugh us to scorn. He complained that such conduct had the effect of nullifying his teaching on the resurrection and encouraged the heathen to continue in unbelief. He asked what could be more unseemly than for a person who professes to be crucified to the world to tear his hair and shriek hysterically in the presence of death. Those who are really worthy of being lamented, Chrysostom admonished, are the ones who are still in fear and trembling at the prospect of death and have no faith at all in the resurrection. Then he drove home his point with these arresting words. May God grant that you all depart this life unwailed. That at my passing, there shouldn't be that sorrow. 
because I understand and you understand that there's something more. Our bodies are corruptible right now, but they will not always be. They will put on incorruption. We are mortal, but that is not our final state. We put on immortality. The promise, death is swallowed up in victory, did not, was not just in the New Testament, but it's throughout the Old Testament as well, a quote from Isaiah. Paul knew this. And then he said, Then shall this be brought to pass, this saying, that death is swallowed up in victory. In Revelation 7, 17, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. I'm looking forward to that day. I don't want to get caught up in the here and now. I don't want to let here and now cause me to be hopeless or turn from God or be pulled aside. But maybe what I need sometimes in my life is not just removed from the situation. Maybe what I really need is a fresh view of heaven in my life as we stand this morning. That's my prayer in many circumstances is, Lord, help me to see heaven clearly again. In fact, we read that there's all kinds of things that happen when I see heaven. Paul in Romans says that when I have a good view of heaven, it creates boldness. Because when I understand what heaven's about and what it entails, it gives me boldness to reach other people. Maybe a fresh view of heaven is what I really need in my life. And I want us to pray that as we close, that we have hope beyond this. Lord, restore my hope today. Give me a fresh view of heaven. Lord Jesus, we come before you thankful that we can be in your presence. Lord, thankful for your word. And I pray that you would encourage us, Lord, this morning. That you would challenge us, Lord. God, that you would open our eyes to see that you would restore hope, Lord. That you would help us to have a fresh view of what you have in store. That this world is not all there is. And Lord, despite the suffering, despite the circumstances we go through, Lord, we know that there is something greater. There is something better prepared for us. And Lord, we put our faith and trust in you and in your word. These words are true and faithful. Restore our hope today, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being in Sunday school today. You can be dismissed for a few minutes before we start our main service.